the last year or so, you've been hearing me talk about ActivePass, our annual membership here at Velo News that includes, oh, today's planned coaching, entry to Rome Massif events, Velo Press books, exclusive industry deals, and so much more. Hey, I have some big news today. We have changed the name of the membership to Outside Plus, and we've packed a ton of new cool stuff into the overall bundle. Uh, first off, we're not taking any of the old perks away from the Active Pass bundle, but we are adding more. Uh, like what? Well, you get a one-year print subscription to Outside Magazine. You also get a premium account with Gaia GPS, the GPS app that allows you to explore detailed maps of your favorite riding or hiking destinations, even when you're offline. Never get lost again, folks. Even if you don't have cell service, you can find out where you're going with Gaia GPS. You get a photo package from Finisher Picks, the event photography company that's at all the Roll Massif events and many other events out there. You also get access to a new Roll Massif event. That's right, the Enchanted Circle Sportive, August 28th in Red River, New Mexico. That event is free to Outside Plus members, and you also get 25% off to all the other Roll Massif events. What else is new? Online yoga courses from Yoga Journal, skiing and backpacking video tutorials, and meal plans and recipes from clean eating and better nutrition. All that goes into the bundle that already included today's plan coaching, Velo Press books, magazine subscriptions, industry deals. There's a lot in there, and the price has stayed the same. That's right. $99 for a 12-month membership to Outside Plus. There's a lot to learn there. I suggest you all check out velonews.com forward slash Outside Plus, and you can read up about all the perks included in our new membership. Okay, let's get on with today's podcast. Welcome back to the Velo News Podcast. Fred Dreyer coming to you Tuesday morning here at the home offices. Very relaxed Tuesday morning. It must be a rest day. That's right. It's the Giro's second rest day. We are recording this and we have a podcast teaming with Giro d'Italia content. We're going to break down some of the action that we saw in the last few stages. Thrilling finish to Monte Zancalon. Really bad weather in the Dolomites and the truncated stage 16 which is a huge bummer. I actually have to say that um, my wife and I did our honeymoon in that area. We were in Cortina and we're hiking around the Paso Jao and some of those other areas. We stayed at the base of the Fidaya, which had to get cut out. Uh, this was in August. And it is, it's just a thrill. It's just an amazing part of the world. You didn't come across in the TV pictures because it was so cold and rainy, but I, I wholeheartedly recommend anyone who likes bikes or the outdoors to take a trip to that area of Italy if they can. So we're going to break down what we've been seeing. We're going to preview some of the stages coming up, discuss all the storylines going on in this final week of the Giro d'Italia. And then second half of the show, our final catch up with American Larry Warbass. And Larry is going to answer your questions. That's right. Again, if you have questions about the Giro d'Italia, please send them to mailbag at velonews.com. We've been getting some good ones about tire usage and tech. The breakaway one last week I thought was particularly good. And uh, the questions for this final uh, round with Larry have been good too. A lot of stuff about extreme weather and uh, favorite stuff in Italy. But before... We get to Larry. We, of course, need to break down what's going on in the Giro d'Italia uh, with Andrew Hood and Sive O'Shea. Sive, you are making your return 
to the Vela News podcast just one week after de- your debut. Uh, did you get any feedback on your uh, podcast debut? Did people, some of the hardcore pod listeners reach out to you? What uh, what'd you make of your, your podcast debut? I, I think people enjoyed it. I mean, I didn't get any hate mail, which I suppose is always uh, a bonus. Um, yeah, it was. Uh, I had great fun the first time around, and I'm I'm happy to be to be back again. Uh, what do you you got some critique for her, Andy? Did you tweet anything mean at her like uh, people tend to do on Twitter? Well, I guess the the good thing with Sive is that you know hearing English as opposed to reading the English way of writing it, you know, it it, it sounds the same as as, as American English, right, Fred? But like when you read favorite and theater and off flavor, it's like come on, you know, it's an American publication. Crikey! Um, no, Saif has been doing a very good job of eliminating the excess U's in your favorites and colors and uh, all the Britishisms out there. So Saif, you you know, not only are you a natural at podcasting, but you've been doing a good job of uh, conforming to our American English in writing as well. My my house is now full of all the discarded U's that I've had to take out of everything. There's just sheep everywhere. Oh, I love it. Uh, hey, guys, let's talk about the Giro d'Italia. As it stands right now on the second rest day, um, the GC picture is not yet complete. Uh, we have Egan Bernal, who has a two-minute and 24-second advantage on Damiano Caruso, although it feels much greater than that based off of some of his performances in the mountain stages. Rest of the podium, though, has yet to be decided. Before we get to what the rest of this podium is going to look like, let's talk about Bernal and his seemingly dominant rides. Uh, We saw him on Monte Zoncalan um, explode out of that GC group to be the first GC rider there. And then stage 16, the big queen stage through the Dolomites that was shortened by the weather. We saw Bernal attack and take um, the stage win. You know, Hoodie, I feel like the story of the Giro d'Italia over the last few years has been a com- you know compressed, short little margins of victory, excitement bottled up into the last week, and you know a, a GC picture that kind of evolves and gets thrown into the washing machine as they head into the last few mountains. You know, does th- this Bernal performance is this reminiscent of anything for you? What do you make of his dominance um, up to this point in the Giro? Yeah, it's been pretty seamless so far, really. There was some concern with the final time trial in Milano that, uh, you know, some of these guys like uh, uh, Remco, if had, had he been great through the whole race, could have, you know, come back and, and got, overcame any sort of uh, distance that he got in the mountains in the final time trial. But that's I don't see that scenario playing out at all. Um, yeah, I mean, it's been a, a really return to form for Bernal. Uh, the thing that I've been thinking about the last day or so is like uh, – Looking at this Giro, you know, obviously coming into the Giro, uh, Ineos was really just, I thought, the best team on paper, and they were showing it during the race. But reflecting on how strong last year uh, Jumbo Visma was, that they just like completely smashed Bernal. Uh, it just re- really reconfirms how strong that team was at the Tour de France last year. The guys like Wout and that whole team just steamrolled the Ineos train and really just plastered. Uh, Bernal on that tour last year Um, because we haven't seen that kind of level of team going up against Ineos during this Giro so far. So a big comeback for Bernal, no question about it. His back, if it holds out for five or six more days of racing, he will win this Giro d'Italia. Great for cycling, great for Ineos, great for Colombian cycling to see Bernal back. He's a great personality. But, you know, what's going to happen when he goes up against the Jumbo Visma steamroller again? That's going to be very interesting. Yeah, it's an interesting point. I mean, 
when I think about it in those terms, it's almost like Yumbo Visma had the best team for the singular race, but Ineos still has the depth to be able to uh, have, you know, I would say it's B team, but like it's Giro d'Italia team is extremely strong. It's Tour de France team will be very strong too. It has the numbers to be able to spread its strength throughout all the Grand Tours. Whereas, I mean, we saw Yumbo Visma at this Giro, for example, come in backing George Bennett, and they have been basically a non-factor um, throughout the race. Saif, what do you make of the of the Bernal dominance right now? I mean, are the, did the Giro organizers do their job correctly in trying to design a course to bottle the excitement and the tension going into the last week? Or was Bernal just too strong for uh, even a course of this nature to try and, like, keep the margins that small? It, like, other than having, you know, a whacking great big extra time trial in this race, I don't think there would have been any other way of um, kind of neutralizing and Egan Bernal in the form that he's in at the moment and the confidence that he's in. Um, I think that's been the key factor. Um, and we've seen him kind of almost getting stronger um, each, you know, each stage, each mountain stage that he does. Everything, every little thing that he achieves is kind of adding to the confidence that he has. Um, and I think that, I mean, perhaps to a certain extent, he looks much more dominant than he might do against um, a stronger field. Um but that's not to say that, you know, he hasn't been kind of superlative in, in this race. Um, you know, he's raced it perfectly. Um, he's, you know, he hasn't, he hasn't been kind of trying to destroy him and Ineos haven't been trying to destroy teams kind of right from the outset. You know, they have played a slightly conservative race um, and they're, they're, you know, they're using their skill set as when it matters, you know, which is different to the, what we saw with Sky in previous years gone by where they just go to the front and just blast everybody right from the start. They've been a lot more kind of picky with how and when they apply the pressure on on the other teams. Um, and I think that's that's worked perfectly. Um, and it, maybe even with an extra time trial, you know, Bernal would still have the strength and dominance to to take this one home. Um, I don't think there are many, many riders around in the Giro that would be able to beat him in the form that he's in at the moment. I think they would be relying on Bernal's back to to malfunction or for him to suffer some sort of um, mishap with a mechanical or a crash to really be able to to bring that time back. Yeah, when I think about that riding style, I think about the Zonkalan stage in particular, which, you know, we saw we saw Ineos ride aggressively in the first part of this race to uh, the first part of the, the Giro to set Bernal up in some of those early stages. But since then, you know, it does seem like they've been content to, hey, let, let some other teams do some of the work. Okay, you know, Astana Premier Tech wants to ride aggressively to set up Alexander Vlasov. That's great. You know, let them do that. Let them control the day and create little splits here and there and we'll bring the field back together, but we're not going to like you know, control the field and steamroll everyone for every inch of this race. And on the Zunkalan day, that's exactly what happened. And then they did what they did at the base of the Zunkalan and controlled the pace and whittled down the group. And then when it was time, I mean, it wasn't even Egan Bernal who made the big move. It was Simon Yates and Egan Bernal just went with him and then hit out with a coup de grace, which, which why I think that's one of the reasons why I think, you know, the margin of victory right now is slim in that it is two minutes and 24 seconds, even though it feels much bigger. I mean, to me, this feels almost like, 
It, it was reminding me of the 2011 Giro d'Italia when Alberto Contador was just so obviously stronger than everyone. And on all the big mountain stages, he was just, you know, uh, in a different level. He eventually lost that uh, Giro uh, due to suspension. But just the performance throughout that race, I feel like was one of the last times we saw a Giro with a, a dominating ride. I mean, Nairo Quintana had a dominating ride and Vincenzo Nibali did too, I believe in 2013. But Hoodie, I mean, why is it that you feel like the Giro, I mean, some of these margins have been so small over the last few years and why we haven't seen a dominating ride of this nature in, in, in a few years? Yeah, I think part of the reason is is this the nature of the Giro in the sense of it, it's more climbing, Fewer time trials, uh, the fact that it comes earlier in the calendar, maybe not all the big guns are here. But I think really it's the fact that the time trial element at the Giro is, is diminished compared to the Tour. Uh, you get bigger gaps in time trials and someone finishes these days. Even a bad day, a rider might not lose more than a minute or 30 seconds. Uh, even when uh, the top riders are all attacking each other, just the, the level of the peloton such such a higher level these days that the time differences in the mountains aren't really that big of, a, of, of gaps compared to where you can just take minutes in a time trial. So I think the fact that this, this course with that back end time trial, yeah, we'll see some differences, but a final day time trial never produces the same differences as like had it been in stage nine or 11 uh, in the first part of the Jura where a, a rider with good legs could really maybe take some time out of, out of Bernal. Plus, you know, Bernal, he has improved in time trial. He, he's not going to be like uh, just bleeding time. Like some of these climbers. Uh, I think that's something that Bernal has been working on uh, the last couple of years with, with Ineos and he'll need that if he, you know, hopes to win a tour of France again. Yeah. And I don't expect to see a, Tom Dumoulin final time trial or a Teo Gegenhardt final time trial win here. I think that, um, you know, Bernal is good enough of a time trial and great enough as a climber to be able to to hold on to this thing. Um, on to a couple other talking points here. You know, a week ago we had a, a good discussion about Remco Evenepoel and, you know, Remco had just lost some time on that Strata Bianca stage and was beginning to take on water. Now, you know, he has very much slipped down the standings. I believe he is... Um, oh, wow. He's way down there. I can't even find him in the... He's 19th, 28 minutes down. So Remco's GC run has... Uh, yeah, it, it didn't go well. Um, he did not do uh, media availability today, but there were some quotes floating around from Patrick Lefebvre saying his ego has been dented. That boy has never lost. He won everything in the juniors. His first two years of the pros were also great success. This is the first time that he has lost in the sport. Sive, what do you make of the Lefebvre quotes and also where Remco is in this Jira. I mean, do you think it was a smart idea now for them to have brought him here? Is this going to like, I don't know, what what's the, the course forward for old Remco after, you know, not the best Grand Tour debut that he probably would have hoped for? I mean, they probably could have done better by giving him a few more like warm-up races and maybe giving him the welter at the end of the year rather than sending him straight into the Jira d'Italia. But I think... You know, I think that this Giro will make Evenepoel a stronger rider, both physically and mentally. Um, I think often the problem with a lot of these uh, wonder kid type riders is that they so rarely do see that defeat and those losses, like um, Lefebvre referenced, that when it does come to them, you know, and if it comes quite late in their career, they don't know how to handle it. And so by Evenepoel kind of having this disappointment, I'm... Um, perhaps away from like a big race like the tour or somewhere like that where the the attention would be even like hotter 
on him. Um, and also, you know, he's got this, he can kind of play that um, card in that he's been away from racing so long that it does automatically lift an awful lot of the pressure and an awful lot of, you know, what might be said in the Belgian press about him failing. You know, he hasn't he hasn't failed by any any stretch of the imagination. Um, but yeah, I think that this this will be a very big learning experience for him, and it will be good for him to learn what it means to have defeat because he's going to have it again. You know, he's he's young and he's got that effervescence of youth, and um, you know that that takes you a long way. But you know, he's going to come across defeats, bigger defeats, much bigger defeats in the future, and he needs to know how to deal with it. And so, I think in that respect, that this Giro will be good for him. But you know. Also, getting a grand tour in the legs, that's also good from physically, you know. Hoodie, did you have that effervescence of youth when you were uh, 22, 23? I mean, you know, I'm sure that you had just had nonstop success in your life up to that point, And, you know, you hit that first wall and you're like, wow, my youthful effervescence has taken a hit here. Yeah, how do you recover from that? You paint, paint such a grim picture this time. It's like, my God, <laughs> I'm ready to jump off the bridge over here. <laughs> Hey, Fred changed the lead in my story the other day, man. That's that's up there. It's like Remco, you know, getting uh, getting shot out the back. Um, but uh, you know, I, I agree with with much, with much of what Sive just said. I mean, I think even coming into the Grand Tour, no one's expecting inside the team bus that that Remco was going to win the, the the Giro. In fact, if he if he arrives to Milan, that will be considered a victory for him. Uh, you know, he's never raced more than seven days in a row before he came into this Giro d'Italia. He hadn't raced in almost nine or ten months since his crash. So how far he's gone and how well he's done up to now, I think, is a huge victory for Remco. And uh, I don't think anybody really is splashing cold water on him in, in Belgium. Uh, probably quite the contrary. Uh, they want to build up Remco as their next great hope. I mean, there hasn't been a Grand Tour winner in Belgium since the 70s. So uh, no one's going to pile too much pressure on Remco, I don't think, yet. Or at least in terms of you know unrealistic expectations. Uh, so the big question is, you know, how far does he go? If he's really kind of hurting, you know, if, he's, if his tank is truly empty and the weather's going to be bad in the last week here, you know, does he go all the way to Milan just to finish, or does he maybe pull the shoot and, and kind of you know because he does want to go to the Olympics and have a real good run at the uh, gold medal in the time trial. So you know, he he might actually leave the race, but I think we'll we'll see Remco finish this Giro, try to win the final stage in Milan. And just get through the race, get the Grand Tour in his legs, and you know, really, it's an open, open uh, slate for for Remco going forward. Yeah, Remco, after you've won your first Grand Tour, this will forget. We'll forget this one. Fingers crossed on that. No guarantees in cycling, but um, it's been fun to follow him. Um, he uh, he overachieved in that first ten days compared to where I thought he would be, and so um, you know, it's all good for Remco. Hey, we got to hit a couple of these other points of the podcast. First of all. Um, we got a battle for the podium going on. If you look at second place, Damiano Caruso through seventh place, Roman Bardet, we have five riders separated by, oh, two minutes and 40 seconds or so, which, you know, heading into a monster third week like this, anything can happen. So Caruso, Hugh Carthy, Alexander Vlasov, Simon Yates, Julio Ciccone, and Roman Bardet all battling for those final two spots on the podium. Um, Sive, what do you make of this battle for the second and third place? And um, who are your, who's, who are your picks 
to get those last two spots? Big question. Um, no, well, I'm really looking forward to it. Um, I think it'll be exciting to watch because, like you said, it's so close. You know, there's only just over two and a half minutes between second and seventh. Um, and so, you know, there's, there's going to be a lot of riders looking to gain gain a lot of time. And I think, you know, riders like Bardet, like Yates, even like Vlasov, you know, these are riders that kind of are very aggressive, um, like to attack. And I think particularly in Yates and Bardet, they've not really got an awful lot to lose either. You know, um, Bardet, like seventh place in the Giro. That I mean, that's not really, it's, it's a good result, but I think he'd rather throw that away on the off chance of getting the podium and finish like 25th then, um, you know, come in and, um, yeah, just try and hold on to that that seventh place. So I think we're going to see an awful lot of um, aggress- aggression um, over the next uh, few days. Um, I'll be interested to see how Caruso holds on. I mean, for now, he's, he's in second place. He's ridden like a an almost perfect race. The only rider so far that's been stronger than it is Bernal. Um, you know, but... His previous um, best finish, I think, was eighth place at the Giro in 2015. I, I wrote this like either today or yesterday, so it's <laughs> I, I don't I, I haven't got um, Caruso's results etched in my brain, but um, yeah. So you know, this would be quite a substantial improvement on what he's done before. Um, so I think this next week will be crucial for him whether or not he can maintain the kind of the steady the ship. Or if he's going to sink, um, I'd like to see him stay on that podium. You know, it would be a, a great result for for him. You know, he's done so much work for so many other people over the years that it would be nice to see him have a big result for himself, particularly after Landa um, crashed out in the first week. Um, and I think that, um, yeah, I'd like to see Hugh Carthy as well keep on the podium. Actually. Uh, he's he's ridden a, a great race so far, um, and you know he showed so much promise in the Vuelta last year. Um, and yeah, I think it would be great to see him take that podium spot. I hear you. My my heart and my head are in two different places. Where my head is saying, "Ooh, you know Yates and Vlasov, like this could be really good territory for them." My heart is one hundred percent behind Damiano Caruso. I mean, so much of his career has been spent as a Climbing is a super domestic. You know, he is the last rider to stay with his GC guy and to set the pace before he gets dropped. And here he is given the opportunity to ride for himself. And he's doing a great job of it. And he's been, you know, he's been kicking around forever. I feel like he's been in like the front group at the Tour de France shagging bottles or setting the pace for some other star rider before, you know, having to pull off so many times before. And, um, you know, it's not every day that guys in that position get an opportunity to battle for uh, a, a podium in a grand tour. Um, Hoodie, what can you tell us about Caruso? I mean, you you know, he's a guy who's been in and out of our radar for uh, a long time. What would it mean for him and, and also guys like him to get a podium at a grand tour? Yeah, it's certainly an opportunity of a lifetime for Caruso. Yeah, he was knocking around BMC and then Bayran, you know, kind of working as this uh, super domestique, like you said. And, it can, you know, occasionally it'll happen like that where the captain goes down in flames and then number two suddenly gets his chance to ride. And, you know, it's, it's interesting to see how different riders react to that situation because suddenly the pressure's on them. Suddenly they have to be there every day. It's not like just, you just do your polls and you and you 
pulled off and and roll into the finish. You got to fight every every inch of that of that road every day. So we'll see if he has the staying power to go all the way to the finish. I think really the podiums that come down to whoever has the legs. You know, uh, any one of those guys we mentioned could easily pop into the podium. Uh, Ciccione is there still. Uh, you know, if he has good legs going into this last week, he could easily end up in the podium. Uh, Yates, if he raced the way he raced at Zocalan, he could be on the podium. I think Carthy's the only guy that's been on a podium that hasn't won a Grand Tour that's in that group. Uh, Bardet, I guess, well, Bardet is still there. But uh, any one of those guys, you know, Vlazov, uh, Yates to get finally a podium at the Giro would be a big deal for him. So it's going to be a big fight, and, and Ineos and, and Bernal can just use that to their advantage and just, you know, you can, they can just follow the wheels. Whoever has the legs fighting for the podium, Bernal just hitches a ride to the finish. And if he's a nice guy, I'll let the guy, let the guy get the stage win. If not, he can just bounce off the front and win another stage and pat his lead. I feel like the dynamic we see with the, the Carusos out there, which is the super domestique who gets an opportunity to ride for himself and does well, is like, they, they get that one chance and they get that result, but that doesn't mean they become then a team leader who's capable of replicating that over and over and over again. It's like, it's that one chance. This is like, so when you are watching Damiano Caruso racing at this Giro, just realize that like, this is the guy's one opportunity in his entire life where the stars have aligned, the opportunity's there for him. He has the legs. He doesn't have that level of pressure that he would have, you know, let's say, two or three years from now, he becomes a bona fide team leader. It, it probably won't happen for him. So I think it's a real special, the more and more I think of the Caruso ride, the more and more I see it as a, uh, a special opportunity for him. So go for it, Damiano Caruso. Grab that Giro podium. I wish I put you on my Velo Games team. I didn't, and that's probably why I'm last place in our uh, Velo News League. That's a whole other story. Um, guys, before we get to Larry, we need to have ourselves a fun little debate about, uh, I wouldn't say a polemica, but just a decision that was made uh, on Monday's stage that, of course, the big Dolomite stage that was going to take in three huge passes before finishing in Cortina, but because of rain and cold temperatures took in like one and a quarter passes before going up and over the Paso Jao. We lost television signal. We didn't know what was going on. We had wonderful TV images of all the fans in Cortina with their masks on waving to the camera for like 45 minutes as uh, Egan Bernal was just throttling everyone on the Jiao and he won the stage and it was great. But it brought up the ever-present conversation and debate that we have, which is about uh, the sports extreme weather protocol or Grand Tour de- organizers' decisions to shorten stages when it is cold and rainy and bad weather. And all of the old gomers come out of the woodwork. Grr, 1988, Andy Hampton on the Gavia. Grr, the sport should be for for hard men. Um, Sive, I'll start with you. What did you make of the decision to shorten the stage and just overall the the topic of like, you know... If the weather's bad and it's rainy, you don't want to put the riders out there for too long. Gosh darn it. Um, hard to say without having seen pictures of what it was like at the top of the Fidia and the Poroi. Um, you know, the, I didn't have any images or anything of that. So it, it is difficult to say. Um, I was bitterly disappointed that it was taken out. Um, it would have been great. Although, to be honest, we didn't get to see a whole lot of anything else anyway. So, but it would have been great to to have that big mountain stage because you know these these large, uh, you know, full of altitude meter stages. Even though they're not particularly dramatic, kind of throughout kind of the majority of the stage, they just add 
and to that build towards the crescendo of a grand tour you know they take the energy out of the riders they they make that third week kind of blow up you know a little bit more likely you know the the you know each each and every altitude meter the riders climb is just a little bit more kind of chipping a little bit more off the block a little bit more off the reserves so in that respect yeah it was really disappointing to to um to see it kind of be diminished but at the same time um you know i think that you know rider safety is is important you know we got to sometimes it's easy to forget that these people are are human beings and they're not robots and they can't do anything and everything that we put them through they're they are elite athletes they do i mean they do much more than me kind of probably in the first like half an hour of their day than, than you know i'll do in about three hours but um you know so you know, we, we, we still have to you know treat them treat them with respect they're not performing monkeys and um you know, if if they felt that it was unsafe to do so, then you know, perhaps maybe it was, and maybe it was the right call to to do it. Hoodie, what do you make of this? I mean, are they, is this, this the sport has gotten soft? This is the uh, the woke brigade taking over. You know, cancel culture, canceling climbs. Yeah. Um, I, I certainly agree with Sive about uh, the fact that how these. Uh, cumulative kilometers and climbing really add up. That's kind of the, the the straw in the camel's back idea. That's what makes a grand tour. That's why we see these big dramatic surprises in the Giro, perhaps more than than in, even in the tour. It's because these climbs just build and build and build. So when you take out the guts of the Queen stage, you know that's in a you know yeah the the result yesterday was probably the same. I mean Bernal probably would have won the race had they climbed the, the Fidai Fidai in the uh, Paso Paroy. But, you know, what's going to happen uh, in these last climbing stages, you know, without having that effort in their legs, uh, it's, it's a cumulative effort, and that's where people can just crack. But, you know, it's it's certainly the, the mindset's changed. You know, safety and the well-being of the, of the athletes is much more of a concern, and rightly so. You know, I, I did a column the other day basically kind of outlining some of the context of where cycling is today. And, you know, the truth is we'll never see another stage like the Gavia again. And maybe that's a good thing, right? Those guys riding through a blizzard, you know, maybe they were lucky that no one actually died that day because it was it was horrendous conditions, hypothermia, you know, uh, well beyond the pale of what is, is normal and acceptable. Uh, so today, people are much more, much more cognizant of that and much more responsive to that. So we'll never see it again. Right or wrong, we'll never see Andy Hampson-like scenario riding through the snowbound Gavia ever again. And even if conditions change on the road, now they're stopping races, moving the course forward. We've seen that in, in other races along the way. So cycling's changed, right or wrong. You know, safety has to come first. I totally agree with that. But we're never going to see some of these epic stages, unfortunately, ever again. Oh, they're soft. Dang millennials. They just want participation prizes. They don't want to ride in the rain. Ah, uh, no, I mean, you know, look, I, I've spoken to a number of riders who were on the Gavia that day. And when you hear them describe what it was like to actually do it, it's kind of like, boy, I'm glad that I'm glad that doesn't happen. That shouldn't happen. That's like that was a failure of the system. And in a modern day, like no one would allow that, um, you know, uh, your man, uh, oh, his name's right on the tip of my tongue. Mexican rider, the cricket. He um, he stopped midway down the descent and like harangued some fans until one of them gave him his like puffy ski jacket 
He was just like, I am so cold. I need your puffy ski jacket, roadside fan, or I'm going to die. You know, Johan van der Velde, I think, was crying on it. I talked to him about it. I mean, it was just, you know, and they, they all kind of wear it as a badge of courage of the, oh, well, it was so epic. And that was great. And that was men were men, when men were men. But also like, God, it was horrible. And, and, you know, it's like any situation you've been through where it was like really horrible and hateful in the moment. But afterwards, you know, time goes by and you kind of wear it like a badge. But if, if given lots of money to do it to go over again, you'd probably be like, no, I, I, I don't want to do that again. So um, I think it's fine that they're doing it. I, I, I was bummed out in the moment when they limited stage 16. And I, as a fan, had some of those oh, well, this is just, you know, the riders are soft and they're making extreme decisions in the moment. But then I, I, I spent some time thinking about it and realized that it was just like, oh, I really wanted to see the Paso Fadaya and, you know, did our honeymoon at a little Airbnb at the base of it and wanted to see that on the TV and wanted to go through Kanazai and relive some cool old memories of that part of the world. And, you know, my, my personal uh, feelings around that world are not worth um, you know, making people crash into snowbanks and like put their life at risk. So um, at the end of the day, I think that the push toward um, taking this stuff seriously is a push in the good, in the right direction, even if it means we have to put up with, you know, a bunch of older people and the, you know, going on and on about the Gavia 88, but that's just the way it is. Um, anyway, as we head into this final week, the Giro, um, we have some big monster stages coming up, three mountain stages, and um, let's see here. Kanazai, great great place. Definitely go there. Eat the food. That is coming up uh, on Wednesday. We have 193-kilometer mountain stage, and then Friday, Saturday, before that final time trial. So I am not expecting to see Bernal relinquish control of the race, but are there any things that you all are going to be keeping an eye out for in this final week of the Giro Sive. What are you going to be keeping an eye out for? Um, I'm going to be keeping an eye out for some some long-range attacks. You know, so from the, the Yates and the Bardets of the group, really trying to crack the people around them. Um, I think we're going to see a few a few riders take a punt and, and see, you know, put all the chips on the table and hope that the other guys fold. Hoodie, what do you expect to see? What are you keeping an eye out for? Yeah, I think the only the only guy that I think is seriously ticket to Bernal is Hugh Carthy. I think uh, if he's coming into form and he has his climbing legs, he could maybe, maybe, very much a big maybe, crack Bernal in the right scenario. Don't expect it, but that's I'd like to see that happen. At least try. And I'm keeping an eye out for our Damiano Caruso, our super domestique, to make it onto the podium. Go, Damiano. Cannot wait for you. Uh, well... Sai Voshe and Andrew Hood, you have been wonderful guests on the Villain News Podcast. We will catch up and have a post-mortem on the Giro d'Italia uh, next week, along with a big gravel preview because we have Unbound Gravel coming up. Um, let's get to Larry Warbass and answer some of your reader questions. Okay, now back on the podcast for a third time in this Giro to answer your questions it's Larry Warbass. Larry is coming to us, of course, his second rest day. Um, and before we get to the questions, Larry, I mean, any big difference between the first day, first rest day and the second rest day? Or is it just a rest day is a rest day is a rest day? Um, the second rest day, everyone's a little more tired. You can tell that. That's for sure. Um, so, yeah, I definitely had a little less uh, spring in my step today. <laughs> 
or in my pedal stroke. Uh, but yeah, um, beyond that, most everything is pretty similar. You know, it's just sort of doing everything you can to recover and chilling out. And then, okay, today we're in like uh, really more in the mountains, so there's not really a whole lot around or stuff to do. So, yeah, uh, we aren't really, you know, like the other day <clears throat> we walked around a little bit, but, yeah, there's really nowhere to walk here. So it's beautiful, but, uh, but yeah, we're also the weather wasn't as good. So <laughs> beyond those things, there's not a whole lot of difference. Yeah, where are you guys? Are you guys in the Dolomites right now? Yeah, we're uh, right by uh, Kenazai, so the start for tomorrow. Um, another question I have for you before we get to the reader questions. I mean, just take us inside your stage 16, like this shortened stage. It's rainy. It's cold. Like when you guys hear that the first two clients have been taken out, like what's your reaction and then and what it was, what was it like for you that day? Well, I would definitely say like the morning started with like, yeah, probably quite a bit of apprehension just because everyone was like, damn, like, how are we going to do this? You know, like, uh, it's going to be snowing at the top and like, you know, what do you do? Do you change at the top of every, uh, you know, every pass? Like maybe do you just stop and then change all your clothes and then descend and then, you know, um, <clears throat> so then that's the question. And then it's like, you know, you know, for some guys, maybe there's not a team car behind them. For other guys, there are. Um, so, yeah, you know, it's like really more like a, like a, almost like a lot more worry about logistics. Um, you know, like how are we going to get through this or do this, you know, in the right way? Um, so, yeah, like without freezing. So, um, you know, and like it was a little bit of worry, like, you know, are we going to be riding through like snow on the road, right? So, um, but everyone's like pretty much, I would say majority of the, the concern is just like, how do we dress, you know? Uh, because yeah, for most of the morning, we, we had just assumed that like we were going to do the full stage. Um, and you know, there were some rumblings, like maybe, you know, people were definitely like asking the CPA was asking for uh, like a shorter stage. Um, but you know, RCS was pretty resistant at the start. So um so yeah everyone was like okay guess we're we're doing it you know and um honestly it wasn't until 10 minutes before we we had our sign in time so about 30 minutes before the start that they said okay uh only one climb you know and we got like a text and then everyone was like oh holy shit you know <laughs> like ah you know and then it was like chaos you know because then it was like well what do we do now you know because then then it was like a five minutes later, like, okay, we delayed the start, like 40 minutes or something. So then it was just like, okay, well, now what do we do, you know? And it kind of changes the, the dynamic of the course. And, uh, yeah, so uh, it was more just, yeah, like there was a lot of uncertainty, uh, apprehension, uncertainty. And then, uh, yeah, I guess then it was like, well, it just changed everything at the last moment, so – yeah, that's got to be kind of crazy. I mean, you've been mapping out these courses and plotting them out for days or weeks, and then all of a sudden, ten minutes before sign in, it's changed. And so I can't, I can't even imagine it. But I would assume that the feeling would be sort of better than like, oh, here we go, we're gonna go freeze to death over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was really like we're gonna go out to like hopefully, hopefully we'll we'll come back tonight. You know, like 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 that was sort of like when we were leaving the first time, but then. After it was like, okay, this is manageable, you know, like this will be doable. Um, because I guess also like a bit of the sentiment was like, 
we might not make it through the whole day. You know, like, like we were all kind of thinking like we wouldn't be surprised if they had to cancel the race like halfway through the day if they had done the original route as planned. So, well, it looked cold on the TV screen. We saw your video where you were talking about the joy of having hot chocolate at the finish line. And, and, and that's, that was kind of a key to like, okay. That was a miserable day on the bike. Um, great, Larry. Well, hey, let's get to some of these reader questions. Um, again, if you have a question for, well, you know, write them in. We'll, we'll ping them to Larry. Maybe have some of them on the site, uh, mailbag at velanews.com. We got some great questions in this week about the Zonkalon. Well, people are definitely interested in that. Um, first one, what was your gearing and bike choice for the Zonkalon? Basically, did you do anything different or special from a bike or um, like cog set slash gear? Uh, perspective for Zonkalon? Yeah, so we ride um, like we ride Campagnolo, which is 12 speed. And the, actually, like the pretty much the standard cassette on Campy is like an 1132. So that's already like quite big. Um, and then the only thing we changed from that is I put on a 36 cassette. Um, so yeah, I did 36, 32. And then I rode the tubular wheels because uh, they're a bit lighter. So um, I went with the Bora. I still did like 50 mil deep wheels. Um, and then the, yeah, just the tubulars are a bit lighter. So I've been riding tubeless almost, almost every day in the race. And then for that day, I did a uh, tubular. So were you using the thirty six thirty two? Oh, the the last the last three k were really steep. So it was like, I mean, you were still grinding in the thirty six thirty two. Wow, ouchie. Yeah, like if I would have had a, a a bigger cassette, I would have used it. <laughs> um, here's another Zonkalon question. I mean, is there any climb in North America that you've come across that you could compare to Zonkalon? Mm-hmm. To be honest, I haven't done anything to. I've done some climbs in Hawaii. There's one called Coloco Drive that's really hard. That's honestly, it's actually probably not that far off in terms of steepness. Um, it's something like 10K at like 10% also. So, uh, and there's like sections at 20%. That might actually be, I would say, equivalently as hard. <laughs> It's on the big island just outside of Kona. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that's the tough part. You know, here in Colorado, we have long grinder climbs, but nothing can ever get that steep because if it snows or ices up, there's no way you could ever drive up and down it. But even some of that coastal California stuff, then it's not nearly as long. And, you know, you just look at some of these Giro climbs and, and some of them really are, they do feel like one of one, you know? Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's the thing. It's like in the US, our roads are a lot newer than the roads in Europe, you know? So now it's like, they would, you know, I don't know, make it a lot windier or grade the road or something, you know, uh, or there just wouldn't be a road there, right? <laughs> so. All right, next question. Uh, take us in t- inside a team celebration. You guys won uh, a stage there. So what does what does a team party slash celebration look like that afternoon and evening? Well, you know, it's different if it's like a one-day race or a stage race. So, you know, the thing is with the stage race, a grand tour, it's like you're still racing the next day, right? So, you can't go uh, – you can't get too crazy. Uh, so, you know, it's like uh, – <clears throat> um, yeah, we – obviously, after the finish line, it was really exciting. And I went into like the podium box to find the guys to congratulate them on the stage. And then, you know, um, we – all got when we all got back to the hotel you know it's just like congratulations all around everyone's you know hugging each other even even if it's covid uh everyone was really happy um and then yeah it was like that evening you know um 
you know, it was like a toast uh, with everyone. And yeah, it was just, you know, a little, a little, a light celebration uh, at dinner. Um, and that, that's pretty much it, you know, because it's like uh, everyone, yeah, it was just really great spirits and yeah, a little toast. Uh, but that's pretty much it because yeah, it was back to racing the next day. So nothing too crazy. We took all, we all took a photo together. Um, so yeah, but that, that was, that was the extent of it. And of course, this is stage 12, uh, your teammate, Andrea Vandrame, um, brilliant stage win, but it sounds like it's not like you guys are just getting totally boozed up and like going out till 4am partying then. No, maybe that used to happen back in the day, but that definitely doesn't happen now. So, uh, yeah, <clears throat> might be like a couple guys having a sip and that's it, you know? Uh- I like it. I like it. Well, and at stage 12, like you said, there's still a lot of racing left to do. So if you're, you know, if you're going out too heavy, then you're kind of paying for it the the next few days. Exactly. It's like every ounce of recovery helps in these races. You really need to take advantage. So, so yeah, it's a, it's a fine line. We, we tow here, you know, and we got to really take every, every bit of recovery we can. All right. Uh, here's another question. Uh, this person is wondering about post-race interviews. I watch a lot of post-race interviews, and I'm always curious if the riders get media coaching. Do you guys get, like, media training at the beginning of the year? Um, um, you know, some teams do, but other teams don't. Um, and then, like, on our team, it was, like, it was either optional or for some guys they had it. But, you know, I think it's more for like the new guys or the young guys and then the more experienced guys, it's less so. You know, it's kind of like, I mean, if you're a pro for a certain number of years, you're pretty well trained in terms of like the media stuff. So, um, you know, it's kind of funny because like uh, I forget. But, yeah, I guess as being a pro cyclist, uh, you, you I mean, in the end, you your job, you are getting a lot of practice in the media and then you forget like you actually become quite a good public speaker or in front of a camera and everything like that uh just by nature of what we do because uh yeah you do a lot of interviews and uh yeah it's it's interesting so some writers become good public speakers okay maybe others not i guess yeah that's true i guess there are some people who could use some work but that's more uh their personalities um all right last question here um, after, after major projects at my work, we always have a postmortem medium to go over successes and failures to try and learn from what we did right and what we did wrong. Is there anything like this that goes on after a grand tour? Do you guys have like a big meeting afterwards? I'm trying to think. I can't honestly remember. Um, but you know, sometimes there'll be a bit of a debriefing, you know, after stages and stuff. I know that certain teams are much bigger into that than others. So, I know, for example, like DSM, um, after each stage they go around and then they say, you know, like what went right, what went wrong, um, you know, each day. And then I'm sure they do that on the Grand Tour as well. Um, So some teams do that. Other teams, not as much. Um, But, yeah, I guess it kind of depends on the team. And, um, yeah, it depends on the race, too. Mm -hmm. So but but for us, I guess, um, like I would say – for the majority of races, we don't do that, but sometimes we do. If you were doing your own personal Larry Warbass debrief of this Jira, like what went right, right, what went wrong, what would you, what discussion would you be having with yourself on that? I'd have to wait till the end of the Jira to have that discussion, and then 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 I'll let you know. 
We still have a week left. So. I know. And what a week you have. Um, three big mountain days and a time trial. It's not going to be easy. No, and then the, the only flat-ish day is 230K. So, so yeah, it's going to be a solid one. Well, Larry, we have uh, definitely enjoyed linking up with you for these reader questions on the podcast. And we've definitely also enjoyed your um, diary videos on the site. So listeners, um, check out the Larry Warbass video diaries. And Larry, thank you so much for being such a good sport answering uh, all of our questions throughout the race. No problem. It's a pleasure. 